Designing with real data and with actual sort of production environments is just so much better than designing with static mockups. I think I like have lightly felt that in previous experiences, but as you say, like there is just the, the for anyone who has tried any of these chatbot experiences, like it's the magic of the response that makes it so compelling. It's the it's the personalization and the the two-way street dialogue and how conversant it is. And so like we can make seven Figma screens where like you press some buttons and the, the model like responds, but we like have just typed out what it will say. And I think that just doesn't, it, it doesn't capture the failure modes of like, this thing didn't do what I want or this is kind of dumb. It also doesn't capture the sort of like peeking into the curtain of the future moment. And you're like, oh my God, like this response is, is really good. Like that was really understood me. So I, I think you're totally right. We're trying to just like put stuff out in the world, do a lot of research, be very user centric and user informed. But like once they have their hands on an actual working thing, not a, a mock-up. Hey, everybody, and welcome to How We Scaled It for Design Teams, the show that explores the journey through the arduous road of growing a successful design practice. I'm your host, Adam Perlis, CEO and founder of Academy, a UX staffing and recruiting agency. And today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Joel Lewinstein, the head of product design at Anthropic. We're going to be covering topics like how Anthropic uh, designs for AI, how they work with their partners to design for AI, and also how to prove the value of your design org to the larger organization. So stay tuned for my chat with Joel. But before you do, please take a chance to like and subscribe to our YouTube and Spotify channels. It would really mean a lot. Without further ado, please enjoy my chat with Joel Lewinstein. Welcome, Joel. Thank you so much. I'm, uh, I'm thrilled to be here. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Well, I really appreciate it. Um, to give the audience a bit of context about your background, could you share a little bit about your career? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think I've tried to balance two two things in my career. Um, one is I, j I just love making software. Uh, I have this memory. I, I don't think it's a false memory, but maybe of the first time I like wired up jQuery on a website to like press a button and something happens. And there's just a magic there that I, I think has uh, has never really left me. Um, on the other side, I I really want to be a small part of solving some of the world's biggest problems. And for me, I like to go really low on Maslow's hierarchy. So health, safety, security, uh, economic, thriving, that sort of thing. Um, finding the overlap there has turned out to be really uh, something of a challenge. Uh, a lot of the world's biggest problems just are are not bottlenecked by UX. Uh, and so I think I've been sort of seeking uh, the overlap there, and that's taken me to a bunch of really amazing places. So I started my career at a company called Good Guide, uh, doing sort of an ethical e-commerce company. Um, really interesting um, problems, uh, business challenges, and sort of how, uh, how much time people want to spend researching uh, the products that they purchase. I spent a, a number of years at Quora. I think knowledge sharing and access to knowledge is... Um, is one of the things sort of squarely in that overlap. Um, grew with that team, saw a lot of just really um, interesting best practices and sort of uh, the, the social web of the moment there. Um, left Quora to do sort of more political tech, uh, a different angle with impact, but spent a year or two both on some smaller projects 
and then at a uh, a company called Hustle doing political text messaging. Um, so if your if your listeners get uh, countless fundraising text messages during election season, uh, I'm sorry, that's something uh, we helped helped popularize. Um, and then sort of again in the in the um, tool making and knowledge access, um, I spent a number of years at Airtable. Uh, that was a really fun one for me because I I love software. I think software solves problems and gives people a lot of empowerment. And so finding a way to sort of democratize that access was uh, was really compelling. Um, spent years there going with the team, the design team and company, uh, and then found myself uh, at Anthropic, which is just a, a really amazing kind of overlap of all of these things. Uh, you know, I think AI is one of the few things I've felt in the last few years where um, there are massive design and user experience challenges, and it really does sort of require the most of our field. Um, and it also maybe literally will cure cancer at some point in our lifetime. And so there's just this kind of incredible um, opportunity there. So I was really excited to work at AI. And then um, Anthropic itself, I think, is a really special player sort of in that in that field. And so uh, we're sort of a hybrid of a of a research company, uh, a policy shop, and then a, a product uh, product startup. So we we work on a lot of novel AI research, especially in the kind of like safety and alignment science. Um, we work a lot with policymakers, sort of communicating what what we're learning and what we think should happen in the world. Um, and then we build a, a product. We have an API. We have a, a chatbot called Claude. Um, and there's just a, a ton of really interesting stuff that I'm sure we'll uh, we'll get into. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to to dive into all that. And and before we do, to even give you know the audience just a little bit of background. I mean, you were the head of product design for a a, a group within um, you know Airtable. Um, tell us a little bit about that experience leading a team. I, I think that was one of your first big leadership roles. I know you did a little work for as well, but. Um, yeah, tell us a little bit more about that. I think our users will uh, find that interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, many org structures over the years um, at Airtable, I think the one we we landed on for, for the last few years I was there was sort of a split. So if you think of Airtable as a, a software building platform, you have basically like the, the quote unquote developers who are actually making the apps. And then you have the sort of the, the end users, the consumers of those um, of those apps. And then the the sort of interface is it's almost like an SDK. It's almost like instead of putting out the Apple human interface guidelines, what we put out is a series of building blocks, uh, a, a spreadsheet looking database, an automations platform, a bunch of UI components that these developers can sort of put together and make internal apps or apps for their customers or whatever. So um, I was running the design team on the sort of end user side. So the consumption, the consumption of those apps um, and especially sort of the the particular businesses we want to go after and the sort of types of app we wanted to see created. Um, I mean, tons of really wonderful experiences there, tons of challenging experiences there. Um, I think it's really fun to uh, to go through a number of reorgs. This is this is sounds crazy as I say this out loud. Um, in previous iterations of the company, I was leading some of the more kind of platform developer relations stuff. Um, I started as an IC and I uh, I built the first version of the automations platform. So over the four years I was there, I just saw the company from really different angles. And I I think that leads to like a, uh, I, I hope humbly, you should you should ask my team, but 
Uh, I, I think it leads to a really like, uh, like non-parochial way of seeing your work, which is this org structure is just the, what fits the moment. And I've sort of seen, um, I've, I've seen the product and the company from all these different angles. And I think that gives you just a, a nice sort of different perspective. You're not sort of too wedded to your team's particular uh, OKRs of the moment or anything. You can sort of see the the complexity of what's being built uh, in a number of different ways. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible that you had that chance and it, it makes sense, like the parallel between the work you're doing at Airtable and sounds like a lot of the work that you're going to now be doing at Anthropic. How did you end up, you know, making that transition? How'd you, how'd you land the job at Anthropic? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not sure I'm the, the best person to ask that. Um, you know, I was, I was, as I said, like looking for, I think like everyone, um, 2023 really just showed me the promise of this technology. I was probably like, um, a little bit, uh, late by early adopter standards to sort of really see the the full potential. Um, I think Anthropic does a, a really fantastic job, and I now see on the inside how much work that takes um, uh, of putting out their values in the world. And so I I really care about sort of values aligned uh, companies, and I I think it's been a sort of interesting interesting to watch over the last few years. I think a lot of employees for really good reasons. Um, say they want sort of mission inspiring work. Um, and so a lot of companies couch their, their business and their reason for existing sort of in high minded mission terms. Um, I think that's not, not all missions are created equal, I guess. And so I, I spent a lot of, um, time really scrutinizing and really trying to understand, like, is this, is this for real? Or, uh, is this sort of a more of a, uh, employee brand and marketing thing? And, um, and Anthropic, it's it's real. I mean, there's a lot of like evidence in the policy papers that are written and the interviews that executives have given. So um, I was lucky enough at the tail end of my um, Airtable time to to work a little bit with the team that was doing RAI uh, products. And so I got a little window, I think, into it, it's interesting. I've now been on both sides of a of a foundational model company making an API and then of a, you know, uh, uh verticalized tool consuming that API and trying to deliver value to their customers. So I'd experienced some of the sort of agony and the ecstasy of that, of that consumer side. Um, and I, I, I guess that was a, that was a, gave me enough thoughts on the sort of foundational model side to be the right fit for, uh, where the company is at. Um, I also will just say that, that, you know, the, the, uh, maybe I'm a masochist, but I, I do love scaling companies. Like I love, um, that sort of period of hyper growth and having seen it at Quora and at Airtable, um, I was eager to do it again. And, and certainly Anthropic is in that mode. And so I think that might've made me a, a, a decent fit as well. Amazing. And, and how big is the team that you're now managing there? Like, how do you get all this work done? <laughs> um, ruthless prioritization. Uh, we have, just three product designers right now, um, and and hiring more. Uh, the company is growing fast. It's a it's an interesting spot. The the research and the policy uh, wings of the company are really mature. Um, uh, they've been working for for years. They have just a, a lot of um, process and results. And I think the 
the product team is is more nascent um and so it uh there's there's joys and struggles of, of that but it's it's a really small product team sort of compared to the size and and I, again I, I humbly hope the sort of impact and and recognition that we have in the world um so just three product designers uh there was one there when I started um Kyle Terman who's just an extraordinary uh individual one of these like uh can do it all from branding to writing code to product strategy um and Kyle really laid down just a lot of the foundational way of thinking and some of the sort of like early patterns that we're now uh trying to use as fast as we can <laughs> that that's amazing yeah it's it's a really exciting time to be joining a company it's a sh it's shocking actually how small the team is for i think the outsized impact and reputation that the the company's been able to acquire in such a short amount of time tell me like um you know you guys are having to solve a lot of complex user experience problems what has really changed about the approach to product design given these new paradigms you're having to design for yeah i've thought a lot about this and i i hope this doesn't sound too um uh like i i told you so but i think instead of sort of big changes i feel like even more militantly about things that i sort of had a, an inkling or suspicion on previously i think the sort of the extreme circumstances of ai in 2024 sort of like force your hand on a couple things so i have a, a list of a few one is um just extreme humility about strategy and long-term planning i mean I, I know i know this is the sort of like obvious property of ai right now but it is just changing so fast and it is like so so hard to predict um I've worked in both environments. Quora had a really like kind of a short spikes, kind of not much in the way of like multi-year arcs, um, very results oriented, very sort of like, let's see how this early experiment goes, pivots, agility. Um, Airtable, I think, took much more and and partly the sort of the founder's mentality, partly um, the, the business requirements, a lot more sort of like 18 month bets that we sort of stick with and we see through to the end and then we sort of pivot on that front. Um, I certainly wouldn't prescribe this as like every company should do this, but I think the short sprints and the reactivity um, is just completely necessary in this AI world. So it's a really trippy environment, to be honest. I mean, I think the like, uh, it is really, really hard for humans to understand exponential curves and this technology at least up until now and 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 we certainly think for a while longer will be on this exponential curve so i was i was trying to think of a good um uh you know intuition pump on this um i actually asked claude our our chatbot for um for advice on on like how to communicate the sort of like mind-bending nature of exponential growth and uh, this is probably a, a well-worn one but if you take a chessboard, you put one grain of rice on one cor on one corner, then two grains of rice on the next square, then four, then eight, um, and then go all the way through the board. Um, there are 18 quintillion grains of rice, more grains of rice than have ever existed on Earth. So just like stuff like that just uh, it really challenges your ability to like 
know what your product needs sort of, uh, you know, three months, six months, God forbid, 12 months from now. So I think what that's led us to do is just be a lot more kind of contingency and if then oriented. We have, um, just in like a huge number of ideas, a sort of like astonishing number of ideas across a really wide possibility space rather than like sequence them out in this very like we're definitely doing x and then we're doing y and i'm positive that z will stack on top of y we're much more it's almost like um i i hate sports metaphors in business but i'm gonna i'm gonna try one here which is like i think it's really more like having a football playbook and sort of like you're almost like situationally deploying different things so if the next generation of models have this capability we have an amazing set of features we're excited to do if it turns out that users like really aren't able to access this particular model capability, we have a different set of features. And we're much more sort of like reactive, humble, trying to just like see where things are going and and respond in time. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like research actually provides like uh, take center stage here. You know, it's like you guys are moving quickly and you you're not like there's probably some amount of initial research that um, you forego to get products in the market to test with real people and then have them react versus like doing lots of like, you know, research in advance to be able to do it. It's just the, the, the speed in the market's moving too quickly. So, you know, I'd imagine that you put centra- central focus on this as you build something, put it out into the world, test it with people and see if it's working or yeah. not. Yeah. Yeah. You've, you've, um, you've elegantly teed me up for another one of my sort of like, um, lightly held beliefs. That's now a strongly held belief, which is like, uh, designing with real data and with actual sort of production environments is just so much better than designing with static mockups. I think I like have lightly felt that in previous experiences, but as you say, like there is just the, the, for anyone who has tried any of these chatbot experiences, like it's the magic of the response that makes it so compelling. It's the, it's the personalization and the, the two way street dialogue and how conversant it is. And so like we can make seven Figma screens where like you press some buttons and the, the model like responds, but we like have just typed out what it will say. And I think that just doesn't, it doesn't capture the failure modes of like this thing didn't do what I want or this is kind of dumb. It also doesn't capture the sort of like peeking into the curtain of the future moment. And you're like, oh my God, like this response is, it's really good. Like that was really understood me. So I, I think you're totally right. We're trying to just like put stuff out in the world, do a lot of research, be very user centric and user informed, but like once they have their hands on an actual working thing, not a, a mock-up. Yeah, I, I think that's fantastic. I mean, probably, you know, not every uh, company or team is is built this way, but it's given the environment that you're in, it, I think it totally makes sense to be approaching it that way. And like, what are some of the, like, I don't know, new things, you know, building for like at the moment chat bots essentially, or chat interfaces, I should say, not necessarily bots, um, are, you know, the medium for which we are interacting with AI. Are there any other 
mediums that you guys are thinking about or designing for that you're able to talk about or share? Yeah. I, well, there's, there's, I, I have two reactions to that. So one is the sort of like, uh, at Airtable, we had this really nice phrase of like, um, you know, are you raising the ceiling of your capabilities or are you lowering the floor of people who can access it? And so I think you're asking about raising the ceiling and kind of taking, I think, chat, uh, to, language-based interface has just a lot of limitations. And my my quick two cents is that it's wonderful for the sort of like opening, um, the free form opening sort of like, I'm just going to brain dump all the things that I want to happen and then we'll go from there. Um, I don't think it's as good for the sort of intermediate steps. Um, I'm, I'm, we've spent 40 years making graphical user interfaces. I cannot imagine that like, None of that is relevant in the future. So I think there's ways to layer it in. Um, I can't talk a ton about what we're working on. One thing I personally think is really interesting in this space is um, kind of a little more structure and a little more kind of um, the prompts that you write right now are just text blobs. But really they're like system instructions plus kind of like um, almost like variables or input parameters to a function. And so... Um, a, a small company that I just found that I think is really cool is called Respell. Um, and they're sort of taking like, um, you write a big prompt, uh, but then you you sort of like almost refactor out some of the inputs. So it's like, I want to write uh, a sales email about X. You write a big complicated prompt, then you sort of package that up into like uh, a black box that most people don't have to worry about. And you just tell it what you want to write the email about. Um, I think that's a really compelling direction uh, to sort of like separate out sort of what what's different about each invocation of this versus like the kind of the the system prompts. Um, I have a lot to say about the sort of lowering the floor, but I'll I'll pause there for a minute. Yeah, I, I mean, I I think that's really interesting. You know, one of the things I've been thinking about is a lot of design leaders are either being asked or going to be asked in the next year. Uh, to start integrating AI into the products, services, tools that they built. And um, I think some of them are very well versed in the tooling that exists today. But I'm curious, like you guys have a big task ahead of you um, beyond, of course, the tools that you build uh, internally for consumers to go and use or even prosumers to go use. Um, you know, how are you thinking about integrating with some of these companies and helping them, um, you know, traverse this gap in, in knowledge about how AI can be applied uh, inside of their businesses? Yeah, um, you know, we do uh, we we do a lot of that, and I think we're sort of we're we're maybe doing it on on two fronts. Um, one is just sort of understanding where the opportunities are. Um, there's there's a lot. I mean, there's sort of improving the products that you're making. There's actually like putting it into uh, put, embedding this text text interface into the the UIs that your customers see and kind of improving their experience. Um, there's also like internal efficiency and sort of tools for for worker happiness and sort of the way that you're actually like as a company functioning. There's opportunities in both. Um, the second half is is prompt engineering, which is still this kind of dark art of this space. I think if you um, 
If you want to do a separate hour on like whether or not prompt engineering will be a skill of the future, we could probably do like an interesting roundtable on that. A lot of strong opinions there. Um, and then I think really understanding like the limits of the technology, the, the strengths and weaknesses of the technology. Um, that's maybe where the overlap is. So, you know, I, I just, it is really hard to separate sort of future possibility from current capabilities. And I think companies are looking to both um, set themselves up so that when future models come, when there are more capabilities, when these things kind of are improved, they're well positioned, the integration paths are smooth. Um, but also if you're going to put something in front of customers, it needs to like be really good and and work um, and like deliver real value. And so striking that balance. So uh, uh, one sort of example that I, I really like and I think is indicative of some of the stuff we do is we work with um, uh, a legal company called Robin AI um, and they're helping sort of contract review go faster. Um, contract review takes a really long time. Uh, it, it, lawyers highly trained, highly paid lawyers spend a lot of time just sort of like combing through details, taking like the human desire for something to change in the contract and finding the place in the contract, changing the language, et cetera. Um, so Robin, using our um, our API, has built this really nice sort of sidebar inside of a text editor. Um, you can kind of make general changes. You can ask questions of your contract. You can sort of start to make changes. Um, and they've been able to get, I, I think, a 10x improvement on the amount of time that lawyers spend, like, with a contract. Um, a lot of really interesting technical details there. I think one in particular is um, Claude, the model that we make, is really good with handling long context windows, like um, long documents. And so there's a really nice example of taking kind of a, one of our areas of technical strength, marrying it with, like, a very clear pain point in a customer's life and sort of, like, finding this um, this overlap. Wow. And do you guys actually, it sounds like you even create some partnerships, strategic partnerships, or um, there may be particular clients that you work with even directly to kind of consult and help them learn how they could integrate your technology. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. Yeah. We're trying to do to do both. So we have a, a wonderful sort of sales and go-to-market team, and we do have resources for um, you know some of our, our customers. Um, we also want to to put this out sort of in a more democratized way um, and make this kind of a general skill set. And so it's a little bit of a of a uh, little bit of both. Yeah, self service and a little bit of hand holding as well. Um, that's that's fantastic. Yeah, it's um, you know, it's it's a really amazing the type of work that you guys are doing and also the approach you've taken. You talked a little bit about um, accountability. And I know that there's some things with constitutional AI that you guys have been putting out, a lot of research um, focus. Um, can you talk about those different parts of the business and like how they kind of all are um, helping you guys, you know, push the business forward? Yeah, I can a little bit. So, yeah, so we, we um, you know, the, the, the mission, the goal of the business is to create safe and reliable AI. Um, I'm certainly not the expert on all of the um, all of the details there. Um, one thing that we've done that I, I, I think is really fantastic and and sort of guides a lot of the rest of our work is we've put out something called a responsible scaling policy, um, which is essentially like um, pre-committing to safeguards um, that we will hold ourselves to and we hope others hold themselves to um, 
as the models get more and more powerful. So we do a lot of work on our current generation of models to, to make sure that they're safe and reliable and, and sort of adhere to the, the values that we, we've uh, embedded. We also uh, want to think ahead. And, and obviously, we think that the uh, part of the value that we bring as an institution is the kind of the foresight and the technical understanding of where this is going. And starting to sort of drive a broader conversation, like I mentioned, we um, we're pretty active uh, policy shop as well. We're working with a lot of other players in the space, trying to sort of help set standards both for how to be safe with this current generation, but also think ahead and sort of pre-commit to some things uh, so that we uh, so that when the world changes as fast as I was mentioning before, we've sort of done some pre-thought about what what safety means. Yeah, and I know uh, I've spoken to Christopher Reardon, uh, who was previously at um, at Meta, and then now I believe is at Google on the, one of the responsible AI teams. And you know, one of the things he came, uh, brought to light was this uh, concept of like red teaming. Um, and so my understanding is that the red team is like meant to kind of go through all the worst case scenarios. Um, is that something that you guys like um, either have a team responsible for, or maybe it's even your team? Uh, that ends up being responsible for kind of working through all the really bad scenarios um, and figuring out uh, how to uh, address them? Yeah, I probably shouldn't comment on any of the specific techniques that we use. Um, I think that responsible scaling policy sort of outlines like the the types of concerns. I think what's really interesting about this space, and I'm just kind of purely speaking for myself here, is like there's a lot of different types of uh, concerns that you might have, right? There's sort of, um, there's accidental misuse. There's sort of the, the financial fraud and sort of like more scammy stuff. And then there's, um, obviously some of the more like alignment and sort of, uh, agentic AI stuff. Um, we try and have sort of safeguards against all of them. Um, I think our, our RSP does outline at least some of the techniques for folks who are interested, but, um, probably that's the best best resource. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think that's a good point. I think a lot of the the teams out there who are starting to integrate AI, and I think we've seen, you know, some of these examples where there's definitely like a few memes I've seen out there where somebody starts to, in, you know, interface with, um, well, a bot that really sounds human, but then um, they realize that it's a bot at some point in the conversation and then they get mad and then they start to like tell it to do bad things and um and the, the bot complies and um and so i think a lot of obviously this technology is still evolving and improving uh over time thanks to companies like yours and um you know now that companies are going to start to integrate some of these tools into their own you know um service suites they they'll need to also be thinking through the red teaming right because if they don't, you know, you guys are building for everyone, right? They're building for a specific group. And so they'll need to probably help give input about that or customize their tooling to help fix it. So I think it'll be important for those leaders to really think through that part too. Like not only are they meant to be product design leaders for their company, but they need to also think through the implications of AI and how it impacts their their user base and well, humanity. Totally, totally, totally. 
Yeah. So our research team put out a, a really interesting thing a few months ago that I think is very relevant here. So you mentioned constitutional AI. Just in, in brief, that's essentially a, a way of training um, an LLM where you have a sort of a, a set of values and principles. So we based ours largely on some of the kind of UN um, human rights principles, as well as some of like the kind of Apple privacy policy and a few other things, again, all public. So so definitely encourage you to read about it. Um, that resulted in uh, an AI that we were really happy with and and had a lot of safety and reliability properties we wanted. Um, you know, but the the obvious problem there is like it's just one constitution, and that constitution was written, you know, consultatively, but by a comparatively few number of people. Um, we started a really interesting project in the fall of getting, uh, I believe we call it collective constitutional AI, where we we um, we actually worked with a kind of public uh, polling firm to collect a bunch of values and inputs from uh from citizens of america uh, about what they would want to see in an ai and then we did the same training run um so I think there's a lot of really interesting possibilities there and sort of if you think of the constitutional ai work as like partly our view of what safety means but also partly a technique in which one can take a set of values and train an ai against it that opens up some really interesting, again, sort of democratization and customization opportunities for companies or institutions or people that have different sets of uh, of needs. Absolutely. And to kind of wrap things up, I, I want to ask you one more question. And, you know, you may be able to answer, you may not be able to, but, you know, you guys are at a pretty pivotal point um, for, for any, I'd call you a startup, even though you know, you're kind of starting to grow beyond that. Um, but the, the company's moving so fast. Um, you know, given your team is the size that it is, how do you start to think about scaling? Like, what are the first steps? Um, and like, what's what's the plan? You know, like, uh, it's there's a lot that you're going to have to undertake in the next year, probably. Yeah, I ask myself that um, almost every day. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so many different ways to think about how to scale a team and sort of different lenses you can take. And and somewhat alarmingly, they lead you to like very different uh, answers and team structures and, and types of people. Um, I really like a an almost pretty basic sounding one, which is I really like to just anchor ratios to engineering and to product engineering. Um I don't know what all the teams will be working on three, six, nine, 12 months from now, but I know we want small, tightly knit EPD trio teams that are working on a problem that are shipping software. Like we talked about earlier, like um, putting things out in the world is like the best way to learn here. And so um, in terms of sort of scaling the the product design function, at least, um, I'm just trying to really map one to one to where engineering is going, and those numbers are are something we we talk about a lot. Um, also, building out user research, I think that's a really um, a really important one. And as you said, like there are just there are so many unknowns about this world that that um, we need to be sort of investing in that early and finding ways to just like learn really really rapidly. So those are my two main focus areas in terms of, of team scaling currently. That's great. I, that's a great insight. I haven't really thought about, you know, kind of mapping the eng team to the product team and it sounds and, and the uh, design team 
um, you know, especially in terms of ratios, because, you know, the way it sounds like your teams are structured, especially since they do need to move so fast is, you know, you've got one, at least one member of each of those teams in those pods and, uh, and they're going and attacking a particular problem set. And, um, yeah, I think it's a, a good way to, to kind of refer to it. It's like those ratios. Um, so yeah, cool. So I want to pivot to, uh, another really important topic, you know, with the rise of AI and its ability to make our jobs more efficient, one thing's for certain design teams are definitely getting smaller. So how do you think design leaders can continue to prove their value to organizations? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great question. So I think one really good uh, sort of value and, and series of decisions we made at, at Airtable um, was just trying to optimize for for cross-functional credibility. I think there's always a tension as a design leader of sort of how much do you focus inward on your team and, and how much do you focus kind of externally on, on partners, not that they're always mutually exclusive. But we tried really hard, especially in the hiring phase, to just bring on sort of low ego, high collaboration, high productivity people. Um, I think that paid dividends and that we had a pretty low like designer drama quotient, um, which is which is uh, helpful for for credibility. W one thing I ask myself, this is maybe uh, a slightly um, spicy way of, of coming at this question, but um, I, I think about like the happy hour test of like when you're out with your cross-functional peers as a design leader and you're outside of like your weekly status meetings and everyone's had like, one or two drinks and they're like, come on, Joel, like level with me. Like what is going on with your team? Or like, I've always wanted to ask you this question. I hope it's not rude. And then they sort of like, they give you the real talk of like what, how you're perceived cross-functionally. And I, I try and take that stuff like really seriously because some of it is fair, some of it isn't, but it's the perception that's like in the org. Um, there's a bunch of tropes. I'm sure this will like trigger a lot of uh, of design leader PTSD. Um, the first one that that I hear all the time is just like design is slow. Like design is just it takes a long time. Um, I, I I think there's some merit to that. And my experience has been like designers uh, care a lot about craft and not as much about like cycle time. I think. I think it comes with experience. I think more senior designers just like work faster. Um, but I think it's a really important thing to instill in designers of every level. And I also think it's um, it's a thing that design leaders like really have leverage over because you're 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 seeing work periodically and you can ask things like, you know, what's the next checkpoint here? When's the next milestone? Like, okay, what if we did this a week earlier? What if we did it two weeks earlier? Like, I think there's a... Um, there's a real ability to like make change there and sort of combat one of the uh, pernicious, but maybe not entirely untrue stereotypes about design teams. Yeah, I think that, you know, anytime you can provide also metrics to help support your case um, and also, you know, well, squ squash the haters. You know, uh, if people are saying you guys are slow, you know, have the data to back it up. Um, and it feels like, you know, in this world where yes, design teams are getting smaller, um, and we as you know leaders need to kind of justify you know the team sizes that we have. Anytime we can add data to it, 
to back up our case is going to be very effective at supporting it. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And then I, as I've thought about that, I usually think about basically like um, hitting OKRs, right? You like the, the classic way to do this would be to say like, you know, the company wanted to achieve X percentage growth in a metric and the design team contributed to that you know, the project that ended up hitting those metrics. Um, I think there's the thing that I probably have thought of less. And I think where this kind of speed things come from is just a, a sort of internal ROI and throughput and output. And if you sort of think, uh, if you think from an executive's point of view of sort of like, I'm, I'm putting a bunch of humans against this problem and like outcomes product, I know it's a sort of a cold way of looking at it, but that is, that is how businesses run. I think just like the speed with which product comes out the door, even if some of it moves metrics and some of it doesn't, you're learning faster, you're sort of like more reactive back to our earlier topic of being like agile and learning quickly. I think it just, um, it's good for the business independent of the sort of like, um, you know, top line KPI movements that might happen. Yeah. I think it definitely breaks me back to a subject I've talked a little bit about, which is like, you know, design leaders kind of need to be business leaders too these days. You know, they need to understand about KPIs or OKRs. They need to um, be able to look at metrics and understand them and apply them to their work. Um, and it's kind of like uh, they talk a little bit about getting a design MBA. Um, and, and uh, you know, I think that there's definitely a, a lot of merit to that. You know, these are in, you know, in the classic design schools, I, I don't think these are things that uh, they teach you. I'm I'm not a, a design school graduate. I, I was luckily a business school graduate, so I learned a lot of this stuff. But, um, you know, I don't know that everybody, you know, a, acquires that type of knowledge and information. They kind of got to learn on the job and figure it out. But yeah, feels like the new a, a paradigm shift, if you will. Definitely. Definitely. Um, and I think at least I, I end up spending a lot of my time sort of as a translation layer and sort of saying like, you know, this, this metric, I, I, I think there's a sense that, you know, top line metrics can be sort of colder and human or sort of not capture the, uh, the genetic quality of what we're making, you know, the sort of like the, the spirit, the soul of what makes design design. And I think a lot of what design leaders do is, is connect the dots there and say like, Look, we're not measuring soul, but I think we all have this belief that if there's soul in this product, it'll make people use it more. It'll make people pay for it more. Whatever we need to do, that'll move the numbers. Um, yeah, I think there's a sort of like a, a cultural mismatch sometimes between like hitting your business numbers and what designers often take pride in in their work. And I think a lot of what we do is bridge that gap. Yeah, totally. I, there, there's got to be a balance. I mean, I think if a leader were too metrics driven or focused, they may lose sight of what the end goal is here is to, you know, build a great product for their users. Um, and if, but if they're, if they don't consider, you know, the business parts of this, then, well, they may be out of a job. Um, so it's gotta, gotta have that healthy balance. Um, well, I, I think that's a really fantastic point to end on. Uh, thank you so much, Joel. I really appreciate all your thoughts. Um, and, um, yeah, looking forward to hearing more of them. Uh, where can people, uh, find out more about you? 
Yeah. Well, first of all, um, thank you so much. Uh, I'm a, I'm a longtime listener and first time guest, so I appreciate uh, appreciate you having me on. Um, you know, for the Anthropic related stuff, Anthropic.com um, sounds obvious. We publish a lot of our research, a lot of our thinking about sort of AI safety um, there. So definitely recommend that. Um, for me personally, my website is joellewinstein.com. Um, I write the occasional blog post there on a lot of these topics and uh, design and AI. So um, we'd certainly be very honored if folks wanted to uh, to find me there. Amazing. Well, thank you again so much for being here. We appreciate it. Have a great rest of your week. Thank you, Adam. <laughs>